You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Seeing none, uh, let's jump in. Uh, Acts chapter 1. So what we're going to take a look at tonight is uh, the birth of the church, primarily. Uh, And then there's really this this interesting interaction uh, with Peter and a healing. We'll talk about that. Uh, And then we'll talk about a really curious uh, member of the Sanhedrin in chapter 5, which is a really interesting teaching who says, look, look, if what they're doing is not of God, then it will fail. Uh, If what they're doing is of God, you won't be able to overthrow it anyway. So leave them be. And like, what a healthy, interesting perspective. Uh, when we not 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 in terms of talking with the world in terms of the politics because there are some things we need to we do need to stand up for and stand up against uh, but certainly interreligious squabbles you know they can't they shouldn't do that over at that other United Methodist Church down the street if it is not of God it will fail and if it is of God you won't be able to overthrow it anyway so you do you. And, and they do them, and we pray that everyone does it for the glory of God. But we'll get into that, because there, there's some interesting little uh, factoids uh, in that story. Um, so we start at the beginning, uh, chapter 1, in, my first, in the first book, Theophilus. What does Theophilus mean? Does anyone know? Any Greek scholars out there? Theo means God. Philo, or Theophilus, means lover of God. So was it a real person, a real individual? Uh, probably not. Uh, but it is a, is a benefactor. It is someone who wants to know the story. It's probably the person who helped fund Luke putting all of this together. My dear Theophilus, the great lover of God, here is volume two, uh, is that introduction. So in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them uh, 40 days, during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. So, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we have what's called the Great Commission, which is, therefore, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is... Slightly anachronistic, and we're going to talk about some anachronisms. You know what an anachronism is? It's like someone in Shakespeare referring to a digital watch. Like it doesn't, according to the timeline, it doesn't quite work, right? So that Great Commission, in terms of a a triune or a Trinitarian greeting in Matthew, understanding that that kind of Trinitarian formula came just a bit later in the church. So that Great Commission was probably added just a little bit later because it has that formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? Nevertheless, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' word is, therefore go. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' words is, therefore stay. (laughs) Stay here. Don't go yet. This is why Bible study is a lot of fun. (laughs) Therefore stay, stay. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Like, how ambiguous is that? Doesn't say, he doesn't say, like, on Tuesday, you know, 
or next week, uh, not many days from now, right? I love that. This is kind of the same thing. He's, don't go. Stay here. Stay in Jerusalem. So, verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> what's, what's the problem? <sighs> the disciples. You know, the disciples should give us all hope in our humanity, because even after seeing all of these remarkable things and seeing Jesus you know, put down the sword and Jesus being arrested, crucified and resurrected, uh, even though they're, you know, they're walking along the way and, and, and James and John, uh, the sons of thunder was their nickname, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, because they were kind of hot heads and uh, they were arguing about who was going to sit at Jesus's right hand in the coming of his kingdom. And Jesus, uh, I love it, Jesus says, hey, hey, um, what, what are you guys arguing about? When Jesus asks you a question, he already knows the answer, right? I've talked about this before, you know. Uh, When my mother would ask me a question growing up, she wasn't looking for an answer. She was just giving me an opportunity to confess. That's all that was. (coughs) You know, the story I tell is um, my parents went away one weekend. And uh, when they came back, all of the trash cans had been emptied. (laughs) Which was odd. And my mother, she just said, huh. Why are all the trash cans empty? You don't normally take the trash out. You know, she wasn't really concerned as to why the trash. She was just giving me an opportunity to confess. You know, it's like when Adam and Eve are in the garden uh, and they're hiding behind a bush. They're hiding from God behind a bush. That's utterly ridiculous. You know, the creator of everything that is seen and unseen, they duck behind a shrubbery thinking that God can't see them. That's just, this is funny. Uh, And God says, Adam, where are you? Of course, God knows where he is. He's just calling them out, right? Calling them out. So Jesus asks the sons of thunder, James and John, uh, what, are you, what are you guys arguing about? Hmm. They say, well, we're arguing like who's going to be the, the, the uh, sit at your right and sit at your left. Like who's going to be your, your right hand, you know? And he's like, no, 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 the last shall be first, right? So here, right before Jesus is ascended, the disciples say, okay, now, now, is now when you're going to be king of Israel? Is this it? Like, you know, the, the death and resurrection and like you're walking through walls and stuff and like you're, you're really powerful now. Now must be when you're going to establish Israel. And you, No, it's never been about establishing a, sti- a city-state. Or, or as we learned from Thor Ragnarok, Asgard is the people, right? Israel is the people, not not just within the walls of, of you know, the church. Um, I am the church. You are the church. We are the church. You know, the church is not a steeple. The church is not, a, you, know, you know the song. The church is the people, right? Um, so the, the disciples ask him, so is now when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He's, you know, I can imagine him, it's not written here, but I imagine him saying, you know, oy vey, uh, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not when you are given a signet ring, not when you're sitting on an earthly throne. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, um, and as they were watching, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. When he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, (laughs) I love this, 
Why do you stand looking up toward heaven? Um, th- this, this is kind of a biblical way of saying, didn't he give you a job to do? Like, stop staring into the, the skies. Jesus is ascending. He is gone. Now turn your gaze toward the kingdom and here on earth and get busy doing what Jesus is asking you to do. Why are you still standing at the sky, staring at the sky? Let's get moving. Then Jesus, who had been taken up from into heaven, will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is another way of saying, look, when Jesus returns, you'll know it. So stop staring at the sky waiting for it. You'll know. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like when my daughters, because I'll say, like, um, bath time's at, at 7.30. So they'll be messing around and they're like, Dad, what time is it? I'm like, it's three minutes since the last time you asked me what time it was. I'm like, no, look, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when it's time. Dad, what time? Are we there yet? That's another kind of metaphor. Are we there yet? You'll know. When we get, why are you asking that question? That's a bozo question. You'll know because the car's going to stop and we'll get out of it and we'll be where we're supposed to be. Are we there yet? Obviously not. <laughs> Does this look like, you know, when, when is Jesus going to return? When is this going to happen? And they're staring at the sky. Like, stop. Sta- you'll know. You'll know. So go get busy building the church. You'll know when Jesus comes back. Right? Very good. Then we get into this section um, of them choosing another disciple. So why are there 11, 11 disciples at this point? Judas. Yeah, Judas... Um, it depends on which source you read. Uh, in, in Matthew, Judas um, hangs himself. And in uh, Luke, of Acts, or Luke and Acts, in, in Acts, he throws himself off of a cliff. Now, some scholars have said the tree must have been near the cliff. or what. The point isn't to figure out exactly how Judas died. The tragedy of that story is that Judas didn't stick around long enough to see the resurrected Christ. Because look, if... If Peter can be forgiven for denying Jesus, that same, and we'll talk about it in just a minute how, 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 um, how forgetful Peter seems to be of his role in this whole thing. If Peter can be forgiven, Judas would have been too. He didn't stick around long enough to see the resurrected Lord, right? So it's not, was it, was it, did he hang himself? Did he jump off a cliff? That's not... It's one of the reasons why I, I typically don't preach on Judas during Holy Week. It distracts us from Jesus. You know, it's another reason why I don't preach on the devil very much because I just end up making the devil sound much more interesting <laughs> than does Jesus. Right? I, it just boggles my mind when, when during Holy Week you'll get like Time Magazine or, and, and it's like this whole expose on Judas. I'm like, oh my, you're missing the point. <laughs> like, stop being distracted. Why don't we talk about Jesus? Said, Did Judas know? Did Judas know? You know what? Let's talk about Jesus. Like, that's enough. Like, just trying to figure out who Jesus is. Like, that's enough. So they choose uh, another disciple. Why is that important, do you think? Yeah, 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, is that... Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's it's symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel, and there's also um, a reference in Luke chapter twenty two thirty that says that the the disciples will judge the twelve tribes. So twelve is, in other words, the church 
is supposed to represent this new people of God, right? So 12 is that number of the 12 tribes of Israel, this new people who choose to struggle with God. That's the importance of 12. Now understand that, like for example, when Stephen or when the other uh, disciples uh, die, they don't then vote and replace. So it's not, it's not a perpetual number of 12 for all time. It's just as they start growing the church, they start with that 12 as a symbolic gesture of being uh, of Israel, of God's people, right? Uh, and they cast lots uh, and they choose Matthias. And then Matthias is not mentioned again in the rest of Scripture. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, uh, but he isn't. Um, da, 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 da. All right, let's skip to chapter 2. Yeah, can we do that? Let's skip to chapter 2. Verse 1. This is the super familiar part uh, of the book of Acts. We read it every year during Pentecost. Um, It says, chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Why were they all together in one place? It's because Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. It's the day remembered. It's the traditional day where they celebrate Moses giving the law to the people. So Pentecost is actually a Jewish uh, tradition and a Jewish holiday. So they were all in one place celebrating that Jewish tradition and that Jewish holiday. It's interesting, when when, when the church was early in in its infancy... They didn't throw out the law. They didn't stop celebrating uh, the Jewish uh, traditions. Over time, some of those things fell out, especially when Paul joins and starts a Gentile mission. But early on, it was very, very, very Jewish in its inception. In fact, our rhythm of church is the same rhythm as the synagogue, as the gathering, right? So they were there. Celebrating Pentecost. And then it's, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and the tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. I find this fascinating that on the day of Pentecost, this would be a different story if the disciples were using a spiritual language that no one understood. That is not what happened. They were using existing languages. People were hearing their own language spoken to them, which is different. It'd be one thing if if God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, blessed them with a spiritual language that needed interpretation. But no, God chose to use an existing culture in order to proclaim the kingdom, which I I find fascinating. Uh, Because sometimes we have this really stark demarcation between the church and the world. And here in this instance, God chose something cultural that was already existing, human language that had been around for a long time, and using that as a vehicle through which to grow the kingdom, right? Pretty remarkable. Uh, Some would say it's like a reversal of of the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel, they were all talking and couldn't hear each other and couldn't understand, but now they're talking all these different languages and they're coming together. And in one sense, it is kind of like uh, a reinstitution of the Tower of Babel, but the problem is the Tower of Babel was about humanity building their own stuff, thinking they don't need God. But now they're building the kingdom of, they're building it for God, uh, not in opposition to God. That's a fun story, the Tower of Babel, because they're building this tower all the way to heaven. And it's a funny verse that said God had to come out of heaven just to see what they were doing. Um, it's just, it's, it's kind of a, you know, burn, like God just totally burned their whole plan. Uh, and they say, we're going to build this tower all the way up to the heavens. And God has to leave heaven just to see what they were doing. That's how small it was, 
right? It's fantastic. But everyone, they're, they're speaking different languages and everyone is hearing a language, um, hearing uh, this, this sermon, the, uh, what, what they were the sharing of the gospel um, in the language that they understand. And I think there's an important lesson there that I do believe that God speaks to us in a language that we can understand. Uh, and then what we are supposed to do with that is build the kingdom of God through it. Some folks, uh, their language is music. For others, it's numbers and math. Through others, it's building and fixing things. Others, it's education. God speaks to you in a language that you can hear and understand. Therefore, go and do. Right? I think that's a powerful, powerful message. In other words, they didn't have one consistent language that they all had to learn. Right? They all heard their own language. Uh, And then it goes on, and, and let's get to the funniest verse in all of Scripture. Let's get to verse 14. So they, were, they thought that they were crazy and that they were drunk and that they were filled with new wine. And of course it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. That's a, that's a funny verse. And you have to just highlight that and say, that's, that's funny. That's his rationale. Peter would be a terrible lawyer. You know? He's not drunk because there is no wine here and there is no, you know, here, bring the breathalyzers out. He goes, no, 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 they're not drunk. It's too early for them to be drunk. <laughs> what a great rationale, you know. Bless his heart. Peter, bless your heart. Um, <laughs> and then he quotes uh, the prophet Joel. Uh, it would be very interesting for you to compare Peter's quoting of the, of the prophet Joel with Joel himself in the Old Testament, right? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming there will be differences um, in those and the reason being is, one of the reasons, is during Peter's day, um, Greek was the, the, prime, the learned language of the time. Uh, so most quotations of the Old... There, there's another story here, but here's something on the surface. Most of the Old Testament quotations come from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most Bibles today are not translated f- from the Greek translation of the Hebrew... It's a translation of the Hebrew. So this is kind of a fun thing when you see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Look it up in the Old Testament and you'll see that it sometimes in some cases is very different than what's being quoted in the New Testament. And it's because most folks in the New Testament were quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. Most of our Bibles today is a direct translation from Hebrew, not from Hebrew to Greek to English, right? And sometimes you've played the telephone game before, right? The number of people playing the game, it changes what the end result is, right? And that's, that's sometimes what we see uh, going on here. So he quotes Joel, uh, and he says, you know, Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it's just one of those perpetual questions of life. And into which category am I? Um, should I be dreaming dreams or having visions? But he talks about my spirit will be poured out. Uh, upon all, and this is one of those things where I say, "What a bozo idea of God's uh, for God to pour out the Holy Spirit on fallible, regular human people." Like the prayer from Saint Augustine, you know, saying, "How miraculous is it that you choose to use fallible people to build your kingdom?" But how thankful I am that you choose to change the world with us, <laughs> that you have included us in this mission. It's fantastic, pouring out the Holy Spirit. Um. And then there's um, signs of blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
Um, I've been asked before, quite recently, um, at the last uh, solar eclipse that we had. Um, someone actually came to my, not a church member, uh, but he came to my office and he was very concerned. He goes, is this, is this a sign of the end? The solar eclipse. And one of my first questions is, no, the world's not going to end today. And if it does, call me a liar tomorrow. You know, that's just one of the things. Um, and, and for folks to like read the tea leaves and, oh, it's going to end on the 24th of whatever. Uh, even in the Bible, it says Jesus doesn't know. Only the Father knows. All right? So if anyone says the world's going to end, I've seen the, with the blood moon, and all, you know, even Jesus in Scripture says, I, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Right? So I asked him, I said, okay, okay, let's say, let's say the solar eclipse is a sign that this is the end. How would you react to that? And he said, well, I would get right with Jesus. Okay. So my next question is, that's exactly where I was going. If it's not a sign of the end times, what would you do? Well, I would, I would keep looking. Like, ugh. You know. That's one of the, the mysteries of, you know, when there were wars and rumors of wars and, you know, or as I like to say, if Jesus said the world was going to end on Tuesday, our sanctuary wouldn't be full until Monday. You know, so if it is or if it isn't, getting right with Jesus is never a bad idea, <laughs> never a bad plan, right? Don't wait for the eclipse to do it, right? But I'm preaching, you're at Bible study, so, you know. Literally preaching to the choir here, right? So, uh, but I love it. And he never came back. He didn't like that answer, you know. I, I think that's a shame. I, I, you know. Speaking of the end times, yeah, yeah. Um, the book of Joel. Yes. Is apocalyptic. Yes. So there's a there's an overtone throughout Acts, throughout the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Apocalyptic end time thought. Yes, apoc- apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is something that is hidden. That is being revealed. That's what apocalypse means. Um, it's, I mean, it is a cool, like, superhero villain, right? The apocalypse, you know, X-Men villain. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. It just means something that is hidden that's being revealed. That's what apocalyptic literature means. So, like, in here, in here Joel, when it says, I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist, and the sun shall be. It's that kind of language which is coded language right revelation is apocalyptic literature it's coded language uh, most of which we've lost the code for um, there are some things we know um, but it's also written uh, in, 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 in coded language Apoc- something that's hidden that's being revealed right um, alright so we go on any, any questions about that or can we move alright uh, verse 22, you that are Israelites, listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you. As you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside of the law. And here I have a little note that my how quickly Peter forgets his own role in, in this entire story. Because he does. In the next chapter of Acts 2, he's like, you did this to Jesus, you did that to Jesus, and he didn't at once say, look guys, I, I, I denied him three times. Therefore, I am proof positive of the power of Christ. 
I denied him. I was forgiven. I'm here. This is my testimony. Uh, Peter is very, you did this, you did that, and you did this. And later you'll hear, if I were to psychoanalyze, I'm not going to, but if I were to psychoanalyze Peter, he seems to be very, very, very concerned about repent and believe. Turn around and do something different. Why do you suppose that that is, that keeps rolling off of Peter's tongue? And it's because it is his story. He doesn't explicitly say it. But it is his, he denied Christ, he was forgiven, and now he's a leader in the church. So over and over, usually, let's see, how do I say this? <laughs> Sometimes the sins of the world that really make us the most angry are the ones we see in the mirror. The sins of the world that anger us most deeply are the ones we see in the mirror. Does that make sense? Um, it's like when, when someone is really, really very similar to you, it's hard to get along with them. Oh, that person's so annoying. It's because they're exactly like me, right? You know? Um, it's like, and I'll just say this, Isabel, God bless, God bless her, she is so very much like me, which is a struggle every, every day. You know, because she, she, you know, chases, chases rabbits all day. And she'll start doing homework and she's like, oh, I think we're going to go write a song. You know, she'll go to the piano and like do a little thing. Do your homework. She's like, okay, okay, I'll do my homework. And I'm going to go uh, over here and play Legend of Zelda. You know, just, just I'm like, oh, why don't you concentrate? Oh, it's because the genes are strong. That's why you don't do that. And then God bless her, Anna Lee is just like Christy. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, her room is always tidy and neat. Doesn't want to cause any trouble. You know, yes, sir. No, sir. I mean, my wife doesn't say that to me. I'm just using that as an example. <laughs> you know, laundry's done by four. You know, that's not. <laughs> we have a rule in our house. Whoever's closest. You know, who does the dishes? Whoever's closest. <laughs> who does the laundry? Whoever's closest. You know, I remember <laughs> early in marriage, I was like, yeah, I'm really running low on shirts. And Christy just stood there like, Do you, do you not know how to turn the thing and press a button? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I'm running low on shirts. Yeah? Sounds like you have a problem on your hands. <laughs> you know? Love it. Um, anyway, so, yeah, the, the sins that, that, that upset us the most are typical, or sometimes not all the time, are the sins we see looking back in the mirror because we're really familiar with them. Um, and it seems that this is part of Peter's message because he over and over and over again repent and believe repent and believe repent and believe because that's my story that's Peter's story right that's me I'll say this that's me reading into the text it doesn't explicitly say that but it seems to me uh, to, to make great sense let's look at verse 37 let's skip ahead a little bit uh, now when they heard this they were cut to because um, Peter gives this grand um, uh, grand sermon Uh, When they heard this, they being the crowd that was there uh, with him, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. That is a radically inclusive message from Peter. 
He's not saying, well, first you have to be really important, or if you study really hard, it's saying, be, repent and be baptized, and the promise is for you. And for your children. And for those who are far off and far away. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. Baptism is, is, is one of those signature markers of what it means to be a Christian. Yes, John the Baptist did baptize um, in the wilderness. Uh, baptize him with water for repentance sake. But said that Christ uh, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here's a fun, interesting question. Did Jesus ever baptize anyone? Yes? yes? You're such a good student, Jay Carraway. So this is the fun of it. And, and, and John, in the Gospel of John, uh, you have both a yes and a no. Again, which makes Bible study lots of fun. In John chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Yes, Jesus and his disciples, they were baptizing. And then it says in John chapter 4, verse 2, Jesus was not baptizing himself. Jesus himself was not baptizing. That's the fun of scripture. Like, so was Jesus actually baptizing? Was Jesus not baptizing? Did he instruct the disciples to do it, but he not himself? It's, you, have, you have both answers uh, in scripture. Kind of fun. Why is it... Hmm, figure out how to ask this. Why was Jesus baptized? Just super quick. You, we are all Christians, man. And it's like, it's one of those questions I've asked a lot. Why was Jesus baptized? And it's just, huh. If our only narrative is baptism is the washing away of our sin, then we have some big theological hoops to jump through and try to explain why Jesus himself was baptized. Right? Theologically speaking, uh, baptism is a, is, a, is a saying yes to God, in a way. It is also, I think, um, and I think you could find this in the heart of Romans, in Romans 5 through 8. We don't have time to d- dissect that. Um, baptism is our connection point with Jesus. Jesus was baptized, and when we are baptized, we are, I think, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think quite literally, united to the person of of Christ. And baptism is that intersection where that begins. So through the water and the Spirit, we are, or as we say, we are baptized into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Baptism is the... Because we, 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 we can... It's pretty easy to see how Jesus was saved, like he was the Messiah, and he offered his life, and he was resurrected. But what does all of that have to do with us? Or at least Paul seems to, seems to suggest in the heart of Romans that through baptism, we are, if you want to use a big fancy word, we are metaphysically united to Jesus in that moment. Jesus lives, so we live. Jesus died, we will too die. And because Jesus was raised, we too will be raised which is the high value of baptism in the early church. It is the thing that unites us to Christ. It's where that story begins. Does that make sense? It's a common commonality that we share with Jesus. Jesus was baptized and so are we. I've never fed 5,000 people with fish and loaves. I haven't walked on water. Right? I haven't changed water in the wine. I've tried. But I have been baptized and therefore united with Christ. 
Yeah, does that make sense? No? Yeah, sure. Chew on that a little bit. It's one of those questions, why was Jesus baptized? Because if our only narrative of baptism is washing away of sin, we have a tough time explaining why Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus was baptized so that we might join him. It gives us an entry point into that story. All right, excellent, good. Let's look at, okay, well, no, let's, let's keep going. Um, you'll see this a lot in the book of Acts, and in and, and, and Luke for that matter. This is verse 43, or let's start at 42, let's back up one. It says, they devoted themselves to really a fourfold rhythm. Uh, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. So in the church's infancy, there was a fourfold path. There was learning from the disciples, from the apostles. There was a, a, a learning. There was also a fellowship with each other. Breaking of bread and also prayers. That was the markers of what it meant to be a Christian. Right? Or we can call it, you know, Bible study. Um, fellowship, we still use that word, fellowship. You know, play, playing soccer with everybody. You know, hanging out, getting to know people, right? Breaking the bread uh, is worship, Christian worship. They didn't, here's, so, they didn't say, oh, we're Christian now, we're never going back to the temple. Uh, as you read very, very quickly, they went to the temple. It was still very Jewish. What set them apart is, in addition to going to the temple, they broke bread at home with each other, right? So, study, fellowship, worship, uh, and, and spirituality, or prayers, right? Intercession, praying for one another, was the fourfold path of the way. It'll be called the church later, but for right now it's the way. It says, all came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believe, and that's, that's a magnificent, they've seen, some of these folks have seen Jesus do these things, but now Rocky's doing them too. Like Peter's doing these signs and wonders, and that's a, a remarkable and miraculous thing, especially hoping that what was coming to their mind is when Jesus said, my followers will do even greater things than I. That, that, is, that is a mind-blowing thing for Jesus to say. You know, the one who walked on water, fed 5,000 people, turned water in their wine. My followers will do even greater works than I. It's amazing. Awe came upon everyone. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as, <coughs> as any had need. Day by day, by day, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread. Remember, uh, they spent much time together in the temple. Uh, they did not throw out their Jewish roots. They broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. My, how different the world would be if we just got that right. Um, being with people and with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. Wouldn't that be something too? <laughs> if if uh, we had the, the goodwill of all of the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. And it's not so much that this uh, introduction to the church is supposed to be an ism. We always have to be very careful not to make an ism out of the church. What do I mean by that? You shouldn't read this and say, oh, they were communists. Or, oh, they were socialists. Or, oh, they were Republicans. Or, oh, they were Democrats. The church did not come to establish an ism. 
whether it's communism or socialism or republicanism, they were the church, right? Ism is, is what we bring to the table through our interpretive lens. And most of the time, inappropriately so. So I don't mean to suggest that the church in its, in its infancy, well, they're just a bunch of communists, just sharing the whole... The point of this is that they were selfless. There was not hierarchy. Anyone who, had, who needed anything received it. In other words, they didn't pack it up and then send it to the home office and the home office shared the wealth. You see what I'm saying? Like it's not, they were not trying to establish an ism, right? Um, that's sometimes we make that, that um, ill-advised step. Uh, they were called being the church. There's no hierarchy. They shared everything. Whereas like um, all United Methodist pastors in Louisiana have a mandatory retreat at the Benedictine Monastery in Covington or Abbeville uh, down south. And Benedictine months, they, they don't take a vow of poverty, but they do take a vow to share everything. And the brothers, they said, well, poverty would be better. <laughs> he said, I hate sharing my stuff. <laughs> um, or, or what he says is, a happy monk is the one who has the car keys. <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're mont- work in prayer. That's what they do. They work and pray. Uh, if you've never been down there, it's really, it's really fantastic. Um, it's in Abbeville, St. Joseph's Abbey, uh, in Abbeville outside of Covington. Um, Benedictine monasteries share the same socioeconomic status as the place in which they find themselves. The vows that they take are not of poverty, but of uh, sustainability, meaning that once you are assigned to that abbey, you don't move. Um, if, in other words, if time get, times get rough, or you're not getting along with somebody, work it out. They, they are married to that location. Once you're assigned to a place, they don't itinerate or move or... They also talked about, you know, the abbey that's in Manhattan looks a little different than the abbey that's in Costa Rica. You know, because they, they adopt the... To, to be a part of the community, they adopt the same socioeconomic status of the community in which they find themselves. Uh, and then once you're appointed, that's where you are. And he said, it's tough. There's nowhere to go. If you're not getting along with someone, you need to figure it out. And they share, they share everything. There's no personal property. Anyway, very interesting. The happy, the happy monk is the one with the keys, uh, is what they say. Chapter 3, can we go on to chapter 3? Is that okay? Any questions, thoughts, concerns? Very good. All right, so Peter, here we go. Uh, one day Peter and John... Uh, we're going up to the temple again at the hour of prayer. Here they are going to the temple uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms for those entering the temple. When he saw they weren't bringing him in there so that he can be in communion with God. <laughs> they were bringing him there so that he could ga- gather alms. Right. Again, at the temple. If, there, if you have some kind of malady, you are not allowed into the inner sanctum of, of the temple, right? You were shut out. So they carried him, yes, but to the, to the gate, to the front door, right? Um, verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him. That's a sermon in and of itself. When you see someone begging, how many of you stop and look and... 
like read the sign that they're holding up. It's kind of like when, when I say, um, who wants to lead us in prayer? You know, the opposite of a staring contest happens. You know, same kind of thing happens when we know that there's a beggar coming. You know, we get real fast in our pace or we have to we check our watch or get on the phone so we don't have to look look at the poor right um, so I love that it says Peter looked at him intently with great intent as did John uh, and said look at us and he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them but Peter said I have no silver or gold but what I have to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, <laughs> he stood and began to walk. And here's the thing. He then entered the temple with them. That's the key here. It's not just, remember when we read healings in scripture, it's not so much about the healing as the teaching that the healing offers. Right? Remember on Sunday, I think it was Sunday, um, the four friends who brought the man on the mat, what's easier, forgive your sin or take up your mat and walk? And the Pharisees have no answer, so Jesus says, okay, take up your mat and walk. It wasn't so much about his healing, it was about the Son of Man's authority to forgive sins. Here, the healing is not so much for his own physical sake, it's so that he could enter into the temple and to be in communion with them. That's the role of the healing. Right. In other words, it's, it's one thing to offer a free clinic. It's another thing to offer a free clinic so that people can get connected to a community. A little bit different. Right? So he entered into the temple with them, <laughs> walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw, uh, saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as one, the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. There's that language again, awe and wonder, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and you rejected. Really, Peter? Again? You reject? You're talking to them? They rejected? Come on, Peter. Let's, let's be, na- name it and claim it, Peter. Name it and claim it. Right. Uh, in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him, but you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And he, and he retells the story. Um, and he goes on and, and continues his, his sermon there. The point of that is the man who was healed is now in communion and in a deeper communion than were the the Pharisees and the people there. Um, He was healed. He walked into the temple with them, with Peter and John, and the rest were astonished at what was happening, um, though they still seemed to question. Let's take, we have like uh, 10-ish minutes, uh, 12-ish minutes. Um, Let's look at at chapter 5. All right, so like I said last, last week, there's a really interesting story in chapter 5 uh, that, that should you be so bold to inc- include on you know, Giving Sunday or Commitment Sunday, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, um, 
they, uh, well, I'll just read it. Uh, but a man named Ananias, uh, with the consent of his wife, uh, Saphra, uh, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. Yeah. <laughs> How about me passing the plate after telling that story? Like just, you know. You know. The, the point of this wasn't the amount that he was given. The point was, is that he was being deceptive in his giving. That's the point. Because in chapter 4, we didn't go over it in chapter 4, but it talks about Barnabas. Barnabas did the opposite. He was in full disclosure and he offered what he could. Here they're saying, this is all we can offer. And, and, and it wasn't. And I'm not saying, hear me clearly, I'm not saying, hand over your checkbooks to Asbury United Methodist Church. You know. Uh, but, well, one, I'll say this. Anyone who has ever asked me, um, should I tithe before or after taxes? Means they're not going to tithe at all. That doesn't that, you know. Um, and what I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's crass. But what, what I mean is, give what you can and then realize you can probably do more. Give, people ask me, how much do I give? Give what you can. Give what you can. Uh, and then realize as you grow in faith and as you grow in love, uh, with God, and you look at the world, and you look at the way, because the checkbook is a, your checkbook is a theological statement on kind of where you are. Um, you realize that you, you can give more. Um, it's not my job. I'll say anybody on a finance team in here. Okay, earmuffs. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. make sure you raise it really high to show everyone uh, what. I, so it's not my job to get you to give to church. It's my job to help you fall in love with God. And I trust that when that happens, uh, God will bless it and will multiply it and satisfy uh, through God's abundance what we need to do. Right? Because if we look at this as I got to really convince them to give, I've already lost. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's lead one another in falling in love with God. Uh, because people give to what they love, for good or ill. <laughs> so. Uh, and and uh, we hope to lead one another in love of God, right? So the point isn't here that, well, Ananias didn't give everything. No, no, no. It's that he was deceptive about it, right? Does that make sense? It's a little bit different than, it's not that God struck him dead because he didn't give every penny to the work of the kingdom. It's that he was claiming that that was all that was there. It was a deceptive giving, right? I'd rather you to give less, I'd, I'd rather you give less in honesty than to be deceptive about it. Right? Don't tell the finance team I said that. See, Robert Squirman. It's all good. It's all good, Rob. All right, so let's look at... Um, okay, this is really interesting, and we'll, we'll end with this. This is really uh, verse 36. Chapter 5, verse 36. Um, this is a super interesting story uh, uh, with Gamaliel. Uh, he was a Pharisee. Look at verse 30. So Peter and John were in hot water and they were arrested because they were preaching Jesus. And uh, the, the 
Sanhedrin was upset at this. So they, they want to throw him in jail. They want to get rid of him. Uh, verse 33 says, when, when they had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council uh, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully, <laughs> consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. What interesting advice. He goes, look, if what they're doing, I know you don't like it because they're letting in Gentiles and they're doing all these things. Um, if it's of human origin and it is not blessed by God, it will fail. So don't, don't worry. Um, but if it's of God and you're shutting them out, you might actually be working against God. And that's the fun of trying to discern the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Is this something God ordained or is this our idea? That's tough. That's a tough discernment. But I love his advice there. Um, let them alone. If it's of human origin, it'll fail. Don't worry about it. Uh, if it's not of human origin and it is divine, then you won't be able to overthrow it anyway. So, guys, you do you uh, and let them, let them do what they're doing. In other words, don't throw them in the jail and don't start an uprising and let it be. God, will work. God is powerful enough to work it out. Like, it's okay. Right? So here's the fun part in terms of Bible study. Uh, and I talked about anachronism. Uh, there's some anachronistic, just as a full disclosure. Now, I would love to say this, because I love this teaching. I love this teaching. Uh, but this was probably constructed after, for a couple of reasons. One is the two people he mentions. Uh, Theodos. Theodos. Uh, there was an uprising of Theodos's uh, in the year 46, A.D. 46. This story if you're doing it chronologically, is taking place around about 37. So Gamaliel is, is, is quoting something that happens 10 years in the future. You just put a little footnote. I'm not saying you throw it out. I'm just giving you the, giving you the info. Uh, and he also says, and then after him, Judas the Galilean, Judas the Galilean's uprising. Now understand that Judas is a common name, but Judas the Galilean, his uprising was in the year six. So the timeline is a bit bit weird. All right, so here's the timeline. In the setting, this story takes place probably around about 37 AD. And he was quoting an uprising that happens 10 years into the future that happens before an uprising that happened in the year 6, so 40, or 30, 40 years before that, and it was all written down between the years of 80 and 100. <laughs> so there's... All of that to say, the point of this teaching is good and true and, and, and holy and beautiful. Even though They didn't have Google to look up, okay, what's, what's the Wikipedia article on Theodos and his uprising? 
right? That, that'd be super to look that up. What's the wiki say about the Judas the Galilean? Oh, that's right, that was in year six. My bad, and like he erases it and put year six, you know. Just to know that sometimes, sometimes we have these little hiccups uh, in scripture, uh, and that's okay. Again, because this was written probably 30 or 40 years after the story actually took place, which means sometimes the timeline gets... And understand, the reason we know that is, again, another kind of leap of faith because it's Josephus who was writing about it. And who's to say that Josephus was right? So it's all a bit of a guess, and the timeline's a bit of screwy. But the point is, this is, is this holy and true and, 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 and good information. If it's of God, or if it's not of God, it will die. And if, it's not a, and if it is of God, um, then by resisting it, you might be resisting God. Right? You won't be able to overthrow it anyway if it's actually of God. Right? And, and I, hope that, I hope that's a good lesson for some of our religious squabbles that we get in. You know? As, as we're trying to discern the activity of the Holy Spirit and the things that Jesus didn't specifically talk about. Like something like we talked about last week, like artificial intelligence. Computer learning. Is that a good thing? Is that a holy thing? I mean, it sounds kind of cool. But then I've also seen Terminator, so it might work out really poorly, right? This is like a good thing. Like, I don't know. You know, Jesus never mentioned artificial intelligence. Like, I don't know. So we have to discern. And we're walking with the Holy Spirit. And this is one of those lessons where if it's not of God, it will die. Uh, And if it is of God, then we can't overthrow it. When we butt up against a theology or or something that we, we're still discerning and, and might not fully agree with. Uh, if it's human-made, then it won't work. Uh, and if it's of God, you're not going to overthrow it anyway. So, there you go. Questions, thoughts, concerns? The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, may we leave this place, and until we meet again, may we be filled with amazement and awe and wonder over the work that God is doing in the world. Let us be filled with glad and generous hearts, not bitterness, anger, or frustration. Yes, Father, help us to fight the good fight, but may that work be fulfilling, may it be joyful may be uplifting so that we might one day share all of who we are with one another so that there's no hierarchy of someone being perceived as more important than someone else so that all might have what they need not as a sharing of wealth but true and holy compassion with the world and may your Holy Spirit move and work and shake us to the core. Be with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace as God's peace goes with you.